Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. In some tragic way, it becomes a really self-fulfilling prophecy because you're like, friendship is trivial. So then I act in ways with my friends where I'm investing less. I'm not checking in as much. I'm showing up less. And then it does become trivial, right? Because if you're not tending those relationships, they're going to inevitably deflate. I don't know. I just think there's more out there for us and we're so lonely. And so why would we throw any form of connection away? Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Now, Dr. Marissa G. Franco is a psychologist, an international speaker, and a New York Times bestselling author. She is known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. Well, we like that, and we're here for that. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland and authored the New York Times bestselling book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Oh, this is going to be good. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. She speaks on belonging at corporations, government agencies, nonprofits, and universities, and especially friendship groups. So I'm so excited to have you here and to have this conversation. We have never correlated attachment to friendship, although it's obvious that it exists, but I'm very excited to get into this. Me too. Me too. 
So tell me, how did you start doing research on friendship? Like, what made you go into that realm? And did it start with attachment theory in the romantic space? So it was definitely personal interest that drove me to study friendship. I was in my young 20s going through these breakups, feeling so bad. So I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where we would practice wellness together and cook and do yoga and meditate. And the most healing part of it was just being in community with these people regularly once a week. And after that experience, I guess I began to question some of the some of the ideas I had been taught about love, that romantic love was the most important form of love, that I wasn't worthy if I didn't have a romantic partner. And I just would look around at my friends and be like, this is love too. Why do we devalue this, especially when we're all so lonely? Why do we pretend that platonic love is so trivial? And so I went on my own journey to try to figure out how to balance that hierarchy that we place on love. And that was really my motivation behind writing platonic. It's interesting that we do place this hierarchy. Like if you are single and crushing it with friendships, we're still asking generally, you know, asking people, have you met anybody? Why are you single? You know, as if you've caught some sort of ailment, you know? Yeah. And we don't ask people that are married, like, hey, do you have larger community outside of your marriage? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a anomaly in the history of humanity to assume that we could get all our social needs met from one person. It's actually an anomaly in our history to devalue friendship because in the past, you know, 1800s and before in the Western world, it was like, you're marrying someone for resources and because they have a good reputation mm-hmm. and the genders are so distinct that you could only find deep intimacy with your friends. So friends wrote love letters to each other. Friends shared beds. Friends wanted each other's honeymoons. Friends carved their names into trees. And that was all normal. But our most recent, I think, last century is actually really abnormal in how we devalue friendship. Yeah, I remember speaking to Dr. R, to Stephanie Kuntz wrote the book, uh, The History of Marriage. And she was saying that we often actually, we didn't go to marriage for love. We went outside of marriage for love, which is really interesting. And then now we've put this thing that's really complex, which is romantic love and maintaining it and keeping it together. And we're really, as you said, we're putting so much pressure. And as we've done that, we've also moved away, not every culture, but I'd say in the Western world, especially we've moved away from community and globalization has had us move away from our families. And so we can find global community and we can find people within our spaces. But, you know, I often hear from people, I have a hard time making friends or I have a hard, you know, and and I know Bumble, I think, now has like a friend feature where you can like swipe to get a friend, you know, <laughs> to meet other people. But you talk in your book about how to make friends. So how do you see attachment fitting into this system of understanding so it can better facilitate our skill set when we're, you know, hanging out by the broccoli, you know, eyeing up a potential really good friend. By the broccoli? <laughs> the broccoli. Yeah. Um, All the best friendships are built, where we find the based friends. on broccoli. <laughs> built around vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Um, Ga- gassy course. friends. Yeah, they're healthier yeah. that way. Yeah. <laughs> how you find healthy people to bring into your life. So the attachment intersection is that people that are securely attached, they have a set of implicit or unconscious beliefs about themselves and other people 
that truly facilitate friendship. A big one is, you know, I talk about the importance of assuming people like you, which securely attached people more likely to tend to do. Insecurely attached people, whether they're anxious, which means they, you know, cling really close because they fear abandonment, or they're avoidant, which means they don't trust people, so they maintain a lot of distance. Both groups are basically thinking that other people are going to reject them. And what happens when we assume people will reject us is that we actually start rejecting them. We become colder, we become withdrawn, we go into self-protection mode. Whereas when we assume that people like us, like secure people tend to do, they think other people are trustworthy, they're very optimistic about how their relationships are going to go, give people the benefit of the doubt. We actually become warmer, according to the research, and friendlier and more open. And so making that assumption becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for them. The other key feature that we see in people that are securely attached is they have this natural perspective taking where they're thinking about their needs and they're thinking about the other person's needs. And they're thinking about how do I balance both of our needs, right? If I have to, if I have to get a need met at expense of my friend, then I want to find a way to bring us more into balance. I'm not just thinking about what can I get out of this relationship. Whereas anxiously and avoidantly attached people, they don't have that same degree of mutuality. We see with anxiously attached people, they're self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing. It's like they don't have a sense of self in their relationships because they feel like if they do, people will abandon them until they get to the point where they just have so much resentment that they pull away. So you see anxiously attached people, they have these fragile friendships. They're investing just as much as secure people, but their friendships aren't lasting. They're more likely to end. And then you see avoidantly attached people where they're not investing at all. They're less likely to initiate friendships, more likely to end friendships. They're kind of like taking themselves out of the game altogether. And they're they're honestly thinking, avoidantly attached people tend to think more about how do I get my needs met? And the other person is imposing on me a lot of the times if they have needs. And so there is a breakdown in the balance, the relational balance that occurs when we're more insecurely attached. What has been the response to people seeing these <laughs> friendship attachment behaviors? Because I can now just, you know, see all these conversations that I've had or witnessed from people who are talking about their friendships or their inability or whatever it is. And definitely that part of going in with the baseline belief that everybody actually likes you, you know, because it's amazing. We don't tend to think our wounding comes up in friendships. We tend to think our wounding comes up in romantic relationships or with our mom and dad. But we don't, like we could be in codependent friendships that are abusive and not even think, well, this is a friendship. This is my BFF. So what has been the response to all of a sudden people being like, oh, now you're bringing my attachment stuff to the friendship circle? You know, I think it's been really illuminating for people because I think when it comes to friendship, people are often like thinking about how they're being treated and they're not thinking about how they treat people, right? So why is nobody inviting me? Why is nobody welcoming me? Why is nobody reaching out? when I'm upset, but we don't ask ourselves, am I doing that for people, right? Like, am I inviting people? Am I making people feel like they're welcome? Am I making people feel like they're accepted? Because fundamentally, you know, there's this theory called risk regulation theory, which basically says that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to be rejected. So if we're constantly thinking about how people are affecting us and not thinking about how we're affecting them, we're not giving people cues of acceptance that are going to draw them nearer to us because we're in this more self-protective mode. And so I think what the attachment framework really did is 
it's painful in some ways because you're like, oh, I guess I might have some responsibility for these dynamics that are happening in my relationships where, you know, you hear anxiously attached people make these like proclamations about the world. Like people are just going to abandon you at the end of the day or avoidantly attached people say, you know, you just can't trust people at the end of the day and not able to see how, oh, what am, what is my set of behaviors that may be contributing to this outcome? And so it's painful to have that self-awareness, but it's also helpful because now you have agency. Now you can change the outcome for you. And that's something, a key thing that I do want to mention about attachment style, which is that they can absolutely change over time and you can work to gain secure attachment. And as we get older, our attachment tends to naturally become more and more secure. And so it's something that we can absolutely work on and it'll make it easier for us to find the friends that we seek. To know that we can change it is so powerful. And I feel like unconsciously, there's it feels like there's less on the line with friendships. Like with romantic relationships, I think, and I, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but I think that it feels like it's a very high-risk zone to practice things like boundaries or stepping into your voice, expressing your needs. But with friendships, especially a really beautiful, powerful, connective friendships, where we have been maybe through a lot of life's trials and tribulations together that we're like, hey, do you want to actually work on our attachment systems and our nervous systems together? You know, that feels like a BFF kind of project. Ooh, I love that. I never thought of inviting a friend to work on our attachment styles together. But we have been, you know, it's funny. I'm on this, I told you, Mark, before we started recording that I'm on this platonic getaway with friends where I rented a villa for us to celebrate platonic, my book. And I just invited friends to come throughout the month. And me and one of my best friends, Kana, we would travel together. And you know, when you travel with people, it's kind of like a romantic relationship because you don't have the space to regulate that you usually do with friendships. So you got to start talking things out or (laughs) it can get really uncomfortable. And I had tried to talk things out on our last trip together to Portugal. And she got really stressed because people are just not used to friends, you know, having that direct communication style with them and they might feel attacked at first. And I really tried to deescalate and be like, I love you in so many ways. This is just, you know, this little thing that I think we can work on together. And now we're getting at this place where every day we were like, what did I do that bothered you? What did I do that bothered you? Uh, (laughs) How can I understand your needs better? Yes. Like I acknowledge that. And thank you for telling me so I can know how to love you better. And it's a very securely attached friendship. (laughs) And it's very special that we can do that. And I think from writing platonic, conflict was my big growth area. And I read all this research that was like, well, if you have open empathic conflict, it's actually linked to deeper intimacy. And I'm like, oh, so conflict can be good. And there's this uh, psychoanalyst, Virginia Goldner, and she says you could have this like flaccid safety where you feel safe with someone because you pretend nothing's ever wrong or you have this dynamic safety where you feel safe with each other because you rupture and you know you can repair. And that's something that I have been exploring with my friends and it's it has deepened our intimacy so much. Yeah, I think about the, there's a statement from the Gottmans that I've always loved and they talk about how the true relationship masters don't leave each other in pain. They repair, they repair, they repair. And I think about that a lot of like in friendships, yeah, to be able to, because to me, there's nothing more powerful than a friend being able to be their vulnerable whole self, which I think often is where that's first found, you know, and and I think with a therapist or a coach that can be the model of regulation and security that then 
kind of busts the paradigm of our dysfunctional relational patterns because we're like, all of a sudden we have a human who's like, tell me more about that, you know? And we might never have experienced that. So to do that, I mean, listen, if I was your friend, which I feel like now I'm your friend already, that you wrote a book called Platonic, I better get ready for you to bring the <laughs> the friendship heat in in the best way. And I think that's so beautiful that. that we can look to our friendships to grow us. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I love the point you made about they always have grown us, right? Like, who were you hanging out with in middle school when you felt awkward and uncomfortable and full of shame? You know, who was there for your high school breakups or when things went wrong? Like, I think and those were critical times of you forming your identities and your friends were there. And then I feel like we move as like in our 20s towards this amnesia where we're like, friends aren't important. It's all about a romantic partner. And it's like, well, if you look at your life, friends were pivotal for you. They were vital for you. They really made you who you are at a time when you were most figuring out who you are. And there's no reason to forget that. And I think part of my epiphanies from writing platonic was really like intimacy is intimacy. Like the same things you do to create intimacy with mm. a romantic partner, you do with friends. There's not this like, there's this unnecessary compartmentalization. And I see it even more so for men where it's like, with my romantic partner, I'm vulnerable. With my romantic partner, I tell them I love them. With my romantic partner, I might hug. And so do something so different with your friends in a way that really limits the intimacy you're able to achieve. And I think in some tragic way, it becomes a really self-fulfilling prophecy because you're like, friendship is trivial. So then I act in ways with my friends where I'm investing less. I'm not checking in as much. I'm showing up less. And then it does become trivial, right? Because if you're not tending those relationships, they're going to inevitably deflate. I don't know. I just think there's more out there for us and we're so lonely. And so why would we throw any form of connection away? Yeah, the... I think of the research from Harvard, the well-being study, now the longest running study on happiness that says, or on well-being, that says that the greatest predictor of your health at 80, 80 is the quality of your relationships at age 50, but not romantic only, all. And that skill set, like if you learn to become secure with a friend, you're bringing that security to your romantic relationship. Like that, that to me was such a powerful I was laughing the other day, I was interviewing Francis Weller, and I was saying it's so interesting to me that we like validate what is so obviously obvious, you know, in terms of science. We're like, oh, friendships and relationships have massive impacts on inflammation, your health, autoimmune, everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's the one thing I was going to ask, and I, once I hear your response, I'll think about my experience of it. What did you see in terms of, or how do you see the relationships between friendships between men and women, you know, assuming that they're heterosexual? So how did you see that? And I guess in any, even same-sex friendships, if there was an attraction, mm -hmm. how did they delineate that level of intimacy, which I often think is the benchmark to starting connections to, mm -hmm. totally. to not diving into the relational zone? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. I think we see in the research between men and women that each gender goes about cross-gender friendships diff a little differently. Like men are more likely to want to be friends with women if they're sexually attracted to them and women are less likely to, to voice that as a reason. We also see in the research that interestingly, women report that their closest friendships are with women, but men report something mixed where sometimes they say their closest friendships are with men. Sometimes they say they're with women. 
And we also see that, you know, when men are friends with men, they're almost half as likely to be vulnerable than women who are friends with women. And they're almost like half as likely to share like affirmation than women are. And so what I think might be happening is that when men become friends with women, there's this mixing of norms because men and women have pretty different. And of course, we're speaking in generalizations here with many exceptions, but many different norms when it comes to friendship. Like I said before, I think for women, there's a lot of overlap between how you treat a romantic partner and how you treat a friend. Like I can tell you how deeply I love you. I can, you know, have physicality, hug you, hold hands. You know, some people cuddle with each other. I can be very vulnerable with you. But often for men, it's like there's this different box for how I treat my friends and how I treat my romantic partner. And I think part of that is there's this concept in the research called homo hysteria, which is the fear of being perceived as gay. And, you know, if we look into the history, homo hysteria wasn't always haunting men in the ways that it was now, because before 1867, basically it was taboo to have sex with someone of the same sex, but that was the only thing that was taboo. And after 1867, Freud and Richard Von Kraft, Ebbing, two psychiatrists, they are trying to like stigmatize people that have sex with some of the same sex more. So they argue, well, if you're having sex with some of the same sex, you have this whole identity. And now there's a constellation of behaviors that could suggest your identity. It's not just sex, it's intimacy with the same gender at all might suggest that you have this disordered identity. And so from then on, we saw like just a real breaking apart of men's friendships that is so sad and so tragic because this is like a fundamental human need to have this form of intimacy. That is really interesting. And I think of the history of psychotherapy and psychiatry and often how just cultural norms, not even cultural norms, sorry, moral standards usually found through religion are then snuck into the research Mm -hmm. in order to say, you know, that this is what the research says. This is what, you know, it's kind of like um, having just had a baby. I remember learning that when women had postpartum depression, they were often put into uh, mental health, like taken and put it in and put in a, what would it be like a mental health hospital? And even the origin of the word hysteria, you know, like these types of things I just am so fascinated by. And <laughs> to take something like <laughs> friendship that might lead into, you know, or, or homosexual behavior. Is that the right term? Behavior where men are hooking up. Yeah, homo hysteria, is that right? Or homosteria? Homo hysteria. Okay, I got it. I got it. That got fear it. of being perceived as that. I can see that. I also wonder though, like, and it's interesting to me that then it was built into this psychological framework that you have a disorder if you're doing that. And then of course men withdraw from it, which is true of any behavior that gets, you know, coded in that way. Today's episode is brought to you by Mana. Now look, we all know it's pretty much impossible to get everything we need nutritionally from diet alone today. And that's due to a lot of the farming practices, fertilizers, all that stuff. And even though we might have a healthy and varied diet, we still may not get all the minerals and nutrients that we need. This product, Mana, which I love, solves this problem through their all-in-one supplement that's made entirely from nature. It combines the wisdom and practice of ancient medicine with modern-day science and innovation. It combines some of the highest quality minerals, amino, fulvic, and humic acids, and nutrients gathered from some of the highest and lowest points on the planet, the mountains and the sea. 
all to provide a comprehensive enhanced mineral matrix. Now, the two main active ingredients in mana are shilajit and ocean plasma. One is black, one is white, one is plant-based, and one is ocean-based, yin and yang. Now, shilajit is a natural substance. It's found mainly in the Himalayas. It's been used in Ayurvedic medicine for 5,000 years to help maintain equilibrium in the body. Clinical studies have shown that shilajit has been proven to increase strength, endurance, and prevent illness. Now, ormus, or ocean plasma, has many regenerative and healing properties and has been used for thousands of years. The benefits of mana are insane. Shilajit and ormus, in addition to fulvic and humic acid, marine minerals, amino acids, protein, nootropics, triterpenes, magnesium, potassium, sulfur, calcium, sodium, and 88 trace minerals, they can help boost cognitive function, improve focus and memory, boost energy levels, provide fast recovery post-workout, enhance your libido and stamina, support testosterone production, and enhance immunity. The list obviously goes on and on. So I've been taking mana every day for the last three months now. I love it. I've been actually noticed an increase in not just my energy levels, but also I have an aura ring and I've been tracking my HRV and my HRV has gone up in the last three months significantly by an average of 20 points. And that's even though we've just had a kid, which is crazy. So if this all sounds like you want to try it, which I'm guessing it does, and you're looking to supercharge your body, restore balance with this all-in-one solution, check out Mana. Visit manavitality.com. That's M-A-N-N-A-V-I-T-A-L-Y-T-Y.com. Use the code MARK20 for 20% off. Go get it now, manavitality.com. So I searched forever for a non-toxic deodorant stick, and I'm not sure about you, but my experience with them is once I Googled the ingredients, I was like, ah, this has still got some stuff in it. Or if it wasn't toxic, it just didn't work that good. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for letting the pheromones out, but it was not the, not the right kind of pheromones. But I'm happy to say I finally found one that I love, and it's from a company called Primally Pure. And they don't just make deodorant, they have a whole line of non-toxic skincare products that are made with ingredients that you don't have to Google. Mm, isn't that great? They're headquartered in Southern California, and all the stuff is done by their skincare chefs who value freshness and purity. So I'm very excited to be partnering with Primally Pure. And the company's founder, Bethany, is a mom of two and the wife of a farmer who truly cares about the integrity of the ingredients they use and the products they create. And for me, as a new father, this matters because I want to have the best, cleanest possible products for my baby Jasper. That is so important to Kylie and I. And this company has a whole baby line. So if this sounds like something that's really important to you and you don't know exactly which products to use, they do help you create a skincare routine with it awesome quiz that they do on their website. And the best part is that Primarily Pure offers a happiness guarantee and they'll give you your money back if you're not satisfied. But I know you will be because Kylie and I absolutely love and trust their products. So if this all sounds like something you want to check out and try, Primarily Pure has given you, my listeners, a special code to use when you order. Just go to primallypure.com today and use the code MarkGroves, just my name, and you get 15% off your order. So that's Primarily P-R-I-M-A com, and use the code MarkRoves at checkout. Save 15%. I'm curious though, because I've also seen the shift in culture that we don't go hunting anymore generally. You know, we still do, but like not near the same amount. We don't go on the same sort of adventures to go get the thing and then come back where you would experience potentially needing to cuddle because it's freezing in your, you know, tent or whatever you're in. But you also don't get that camaraderie and that connection, like, you know, two dudes don't often go to the grocery store together, although 
great idea. But you know what I mean? Like there's less of those contained spaces. And I mean, I don't know, I'm thinking about, is there a difference between, and I'm curious if you know, is there a difference between male group behavior opportunity and female group behavior opportunity in today's culture? This is a great question because I feel like I'm, aside from culture, like I'm kind of confused on why the friendship worlds are so different from men and women. And I, we also see men experiencing higher rates of like institutional disengagement. Like they're less likely to join institutions that can foster connection or be involved in a kid's school. Do you mean like like academic? Social groups. No, just general, like joining social groups, joining social clubs generally. To be honest, I'm not really sure why. I talk to um, every man and they're like a group that they have like spaces for men to connect with each other. And we are trying to like really figure it out. Like what, what is actually, what's going on or like, why is this withdrawal more of a norm for men? And one thing that he said was, that was interesting was like, well, part of traditional masculinity is that if you're in a state of pain, you just adapt to it. Like you don't complain about it. You don't admit, you don't admit it. Right. And loneliness is a state of pain that can feel like admitting weakness and acknowledging it and doing something about it requires you to admit it in the first place. Hmm. I think there's probably so many confounding factors that are all kind of feeding each other. And I'm not sure which one's the chicken and which one's the egg. I think that's definitely true. That sets a man up for the predisposition to not seek social connections. Although I think of the pain of loneliness and like the science showing that it shows up in the same part of the brain as like a physical wound, which is supposed to lead us to go seek connections. But with social media, you could do the seeking without doing the risk taking. Do you know what I mean? I am curious, when you look at the research on male and female friendships, I remember seeing a, I think it was like a YouTube video, but I think this this is, I think there's research done on this too. Not that a YouTube video is research, but it was interesting. They asked men, would you sleep with your best girlfriend? And most of them said yes. And they asked women and most of them said no. And so I think that was really interesting because you said that the research shows men are more likely to be friends with someone they're sexually attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wonder at the basis of male female friendships, is there a lack of psychological safety to go to deeper intimacy or depth for the woman because of that? Yeah. That's a really interesting thought. I'm torn in answering that because I think, well, you're talking about from the woman's perspective. And yeah, I could definitely see that from a woman's perspective that perhaps women feel as if they can't fully express their their love or affirmation because it could be perceived as more sexual interest if that's not something that you're intending. But interestingly, and again, this is from the research, but I, I don't want to get into too much speculation. This finding that men sometimes report feeling closer to women friends than than men friends and that it's kind of split makes me wonder, is there like a psychological safety that men are experiencing with women? Or maybe there's just a different types of psychological safety men might experience with men. Like men do report being more relaxed around other men compared to women, but being able to like be more vulnerable with other women. So it's complicated. I also think about how like someone I interviewed for my book, and this is a finding in general that we see that it's called the beautiful mess effect, which is that when we are vulnerable, we think people are judging us more than they actually are. And, you know, I think, I will say, just so I don't get out of my wheelhouse here, that this person I interviewed was like, yeah, people really did shame me for my vulnerability when I was in high school. 
But now that I'm an adult, they don't do that anymore. And I can be vulnerable with other men. And I think his argument was that some men don't necessarily realize that the situation has changed and they might be able to be more vulnerable with their male friends and not feel as much shaming. And that is a research back finding that in general, for all of us, when we're vulnerable, we think we're going to be more shamed than we actually are. In fact, vulnerability, I mean, honestly, nothing makes you feel more intimacy with someone than when you can be vulnerable with them and they respond positively. So I think there could also be this fear of vulnerability that's very real for a certain time in your life that may have evolved. But with with all of these principles of connection, it's like if you never test it again, because you're afraid of the same negative reaction, you're afraid of that same shaming and you never put yourself out there to then share something you're struggling with, that assumption that you're going to be rejected or discarded for your vulnerability is crystallized and it's never challenged and it continues to live inside. Yeah, you keep recreating the same experience. To think that the male friendships are not the place that you can... I could see that, you know, that when you're young, when you're in high school or junior high, you know, let's say 12 to 18, 20, there's a social hierarchy that's being created and the males who tend to go to the top of the hierarchy are the athletic, strong, powerful I would say now that's shifted to also highly intelligent, you know, that that's also there. And so if you do, as you said earlier, if you are vulnerable and that vulnerability gets weaponized against you as an example of your weakness and why you should be further down the ladder. And if you witness that, which I didn't really witness that a little bit, actually, and then, of course, it makes you, if you witness it or experience it, it makes you recoil and hold on. But what you're saying is so true that, and I've not considered this, that, of course, as you mature, ideally, your relationships mature and there is actually safety for vulnerability. And also, you know, Brene Brown kind of blew up with her power of vulnerability. And then all of a sudden, vulnerability, so hot, it became like a big subject. And culturally, things have shifted. So, if I understand what you're saying correctly, you're you're also saying that the behaviors that you might have experienced at 13 that have caused you to hold back vulnerability with men and people might actually and are likely not applicable today. Is that fair? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, I don't know. I feel like a good affirmation is like, allow me to s- the space to accept the safety that I may have historically discarded, but that's there for me in the present, you know? It's a trauma. Like, honestly, being vulnerable at a young age and having people shame you for it and call you weak or pathetic, it's traumatic. And trauma changes our perception of the world in a way that we fundamentally see it as more unsafe henceforward. You know, there's not, I don't know if, if, you know, a lot of people have healed from that trauma because we do see like up until the age of like 12, boys are hugging each other. Boys are telling each other, I love you. Like there's not as stark of a gender difference between boys and girls friendships, but then it starts to grow. And there's this big fork in the road that tends to happen. Naomi way. She's a researcher at NYU. She has a great book about this. So it's not, I can't say that this is inherent, like these gender differences in friendship at all, because, you know, when we're a young self before we're like, so the culture so instilled in us, Friendship tends to be so similar and boys do have a lot of intimacy within their friendships. And it's tragic. You know, I I had a student say, nobody ever told me that it was shameful to be vulnerable, but I just, I just took that in from like culture. Like it wasn't something even intentional, but I still received that message. You know, 
I think even just like our cultural messaging comes from how are the people showing up around us, right? So if you're you're continuously being exposed to people that are navigating life in a certain way, that's how you learn you should navigate life. So um, it's really hard. And honestly, yeah, I mean, we definitely need to be doing more for men's experience of connectedness to one another. And I mean, people in general, but specifically men, <laughs> yes. Yeah, don't leave everybody out. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you witnessed, read, researched on, like what were some of the top qualities of a really high-functioning relationship? And I know you talk about how to keep friends. Is that part of the model that you have with your friend, you know, that you're traveling with? Like, is it a similar, like, check-ins? You know, am I meeting your needs? How can I show up better? God, these are all excellent baseline behaviors for romantic relationships, too. (laughs) They are, I'm telling you. The lines are blurred. Okay, so what are the different skills that you need to make and keep friends? This is like the last six chapters of my book. So a big one is initiative. People assume friendship happens organically. It does not, not in adulthood, because there's a sociologist, Rebecca Adams, and she says, you need repeated unplanned interaction, like you might get at school or work, and shared vulnerability for friendship to happen more organically. But look at our adult lives, and a lot of us don't have that anymore. Like in school, that was recess, that was lunch, that was gym. But as adults, it's like we have work where we see each other every day, but we're not being vulnerable all the time with our coworkers, and a lot of people have anxieties around that. So what that means is if you rely on the same template that you relied on as a kid, you're going to end up lonely because you're not inhabiting the same environments that you inhabited. So friendship doesn't happen organically. Like you are, as an adult, you're going to have to make it happen. And part of the ways that you can do that is that you can recreate continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. So I tell people, join a social group that meets repeatedly. Stick to it for a few months because at first it's going to be uncomfortable. There's this effect called the mere exposure effect, which is that the more that we are exposed to people, the more that we like them. Completely unconscious. You know, these women were planted into psychology lectures. And at the end of the semester, People reported liking the woman who showed up to the most lectures 20% more than the woman that didn't show up for any, but they didn't remember any of the women. So it's completely unconscious. So yeah, so what that means is like once you join that social group, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm not connecting with people. I have to like duck out. But I'm like, okay, you shouldn't expect to feel so connected after meeting people once. Like you're going to have to stay for like two to three months unless you really hate it. Give it two to three months. And then I think another part of initiative We show up and we don't talk to anyone. And that's something called covert avoidance, which is I show up physically, but I check out mentally. I'm on my phone. I'm in the corner. I'm talking to the one person I already know. And initiative means that we overcome that. We say, hi, my name is Marissa. How do you enjoy this place? We introduce ourselves to other people. We do all the things that we hope people will do for us, right? Be warm, welcoming, engage us in conversation. And we start doing that for other people. And so initiative I mean, that's that's just key. If you're not initiating, we can't get to the rest of the steps because we haven't made the friends to deepen and maintain the friendships. That maintaining friendships, the habits and rituals of, of people that stay in that engaged relationship, <laughs> saying that it doesn't happen organically as much anymore. It's so true. It's so true. I feel like recess was amazing. <laughs> I wish we had at all right? recess because, man, remember how fun that was? You're like, go. You had a game planned already. Everyone knew what they were doing. You had to experience the social dynamics of getting picked last or middle, you know, like whatever it might, boys chase the girls, girls, you know, all the different girls chase the boys. 
all these different ways that we develop socially. And I think when I first moved to Vancouver years ago, I got brought to this dinner and I didn't know anybody except for my friend who brought me. And I was talking to the host and all the food was provided. It was like this big, and there must've been 25 people there. And I was asking the host, like, how often do you do this? They're like, oh, we do it every week. And we tell anyone who's coming that they're free to bring a friend that we don't know. And I was like, why do you do this? Yeah, and they were immigrants. And they said that because when we first moved here, we didn't have family and community. And so we wanted to start to build that for people when they move here or they don't know anyone here, that they don't have to think about bringing food that they can if they want, but they don't have to, that they're taken care of. And I was like, huh, this is amazing. And so we started to do a family dinner every week or two where we would just choose a theme of food and everybody in the friend group could bring somebody and and we would, you know, have Mexican one night and Italian another. And it was so amazing. That's one of the things I really miss about Vancouver is just that, that group of people and all the people you would meet. And there are marriages and kids and relationships that are formed from those experiences of meeting each other, which is so awesome, which is really how we meet our romantic partners too, not just Tinder and Bumble and Match.com and Hinge, but actually through this organic Although I, it's interesting, you were saying organic versus that, was it initiative? Initiative, yeah. It feels like they're both. Like initiative can be organic, right? What did you see as the like greatest ways to do that? Like to mother or to father someone as a dynamic state rather than a static one. Like I don't have to be your mother to be mothering sometimes for you or your father to be fathering sometimes for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm blurring the lines between all types of relationships, but like there's times in a friendship where we may be called to mother. There's times in a friendship where we may be called to father. Shouldn't be the the whole friendship. <laughs> but I think we can see these roles as a lot more dynamic than we typically see them. And it's beautiful when people experience that mothering from friends. And then your second question, the first that I really like is like if you're lonely, reconnect with someone. Because research finds that when you reach out to someone to reconnect, they actually appreciate it more than people predict. I think sometimes we think people have moved on with their lives. They don't want to hear from me when that tends to not be as true as we think. So first step is like, is there someone you were texting this time last year that you wish you were still texting now? And can you reach out to them to catch up? The second one would be to join a group that meets repeatedly over time. And once you find someone in that group that you get along with, ask them to hang out one-on-one -on -one because creating connection in some ways is about like positive segregation, like having some degree of exclusive memories and experiences with a person that you don't have with everyone else. So asking someone in the group, hey, next time when we have our soccer game, do you like want to meet up before, catch up, get some coffee, get some tea, something like that. I also like initiative that looks like you kind of, I guess people would do this more in dating, but like, let's say you move to a new city and you're like, really looking to connect with people. Do you know anyone I might get along with who you could put me in touch with? And I think you can do that in your, even if you've been in the same city by saying like, hey, you know, I'm really looking to expand my social network after the pandemic. Like, is there anyone cool that you know that you might want to put me in touch with? Oh, and here's my last, my last example. So I teach this class on loneliness and one of the classes, everybody's hanging out outside of the class, exactly what I want for them. But the other class, no one is. So me, I'm like, what's the difference between these two groups? 
Here's what I see in my anthropological study of friendship through my students. One of the classes has a student, Savannah, who would just say, hey, did anyone want to get lunch after class? Like every class. And because of her efforts, that whole class experienced more connection. And no one else had to do anything else. No one else had to take initiative. Because Savannah is what I call an igniter. An igniter is someone who basically creates social groups. They ignite social groups for other people. So now everyone else has an opportunity to connect, even though they didn't have to take as much initiative. And so for me, I ignite all the time. Like I did La Cena, which is a Spanish-speaking group, Spanish-speaking dinner group. When I wrote my book, I had a writing critique group where we met up and we critiqued each other's chapters. You know, I had my wellness group that kind of founded Platonic. I had a life hustle group where we're meeting up to work on things outside of our, our main jobs. And so if there's something you want to do, just meet, find one other friend and be like, hey, would you be interested in doing a dinner group? I also have a dinner group once a month, Restaurants of DC. Would, would you be interested in doing like a dinner group, maybe bringing together people awesome. once a month? Yeah, literally each person brings one other person. You then have a group. You know, I think when we operate, maybe we didn't have the safest childhood. Maybe we didn't experience unconditional loving connection. Maybe we were bullied as a kid. Like there are so many factors that go into our fear of making and maintaining connections that are all so valid. And what I love about what you're saying is if you actually just start to be aware of the belief you go into meeting people with, that can profoundly change your behavior and your life. And then if you take the things you talk about in your book and these skill sets and you start to put them into practice, you become someone who creates social connections and by stepping into that brave, courageous space of saying, I'm going to be an igniter, which, fuck yeah, we need more igniters, is when we do it. Because so many of us are longing for connection. And Francis Weller has this beautiful quote where he says that we spend our lives seeking a place of belonging. And at some point, we have to become the place of welcome. And I think like, what a beautiful thing to be an igniter when you might not have felt you had community and now you're creating community. And if you follow the things that you're saying, you could have dinner clubs. You got more clubs than clubs on club apps. Like that's awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it just requires us to take a risk, which feels scary, but I just think of rejection as, I mean, it hurts, but it's also so beautiful because rejection means that you went for the life that you wanted, that you tried to curate the community that you really, really wanted. And the opposite is being passive and being in a state of receiving and living a life that doesn't have your stamp on it. And so go out there and get rejected <laughs> because that means you're going for the life and the relationships that you really want. That's such a beautiful way to send people off in that when someone doesn't want to do the dinner or want to do the thing, it doesn't mean the thing shouldn't happen. It just means they're not your someone for that thing. And I think sometimes when we're caught in that childhood wound of like, they're not wanting or they're not means I'm not worthy of, as opposed to they're not wanting means they're not aligned for the thing I'm creating. Man, I have loved this conversation about friendship and just so appreciative of the work that you do. And I'm so happy we got connected by Sylvester. Because Sylvester McNutt, and for those listening, like I've been on his podcast, he's been on this one a few times. He's such a great guy. So thank you so much for taking the risk and getting the introduction so that I could have you on here to help inform people about how to create better friendships, better communities, better 
family, you know, all the things. So I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, actually, I want to ask first, what is the most profound or wise thing that you know, (laughs) no pressure, on how people can enrich and maintain not just romantic relationships, but all relationships? And I know that might be redundant to some of the conversation we had, but I think it's really important that someone gets like explicit advice on how to be better at relationship, like one piece of advice. One piece of advice. You wanted me to give you something super practical or something that's more general, evocative understanding of things? You choose. Okay. Well, this is my favorite quote that I've heard. My niece read Platonic. She's like 23 now. And what she said from reading it was, for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be brave. That's beautiful. Is she going to write a book now? She should. We should collaborate. If she has more (laughs) gems like that, like we'll write it together. (laughs) (laughs) Be brave. That's a great, that's a great quote. Dr. Marissa G. Franco, where can people find more of you? And I'm guessing because the book is a New York Times bestseller, you can get it anywhere. But what about the rest of all your work? and your writing and all the things. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. I share research back tips on connection. On my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can take a free quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend, gives you some suggestions. And you can also reach out on my website for speaking engagements related to connection and belonging at work or in life. Awesome. We're going to make sure that all those links are in the show notes for you listening. Dr. Marissa G. Franco, thank you so much for coming. Thank you.